Hey, everybody. It is Tuesday, November 21st. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, since we're getting into doing traffic and weather on the nines um, here <laughs> on the podcast, uh, appreciated your uh, post on Instagram yesterday about uh, the truck that hit a bridge uh, on the Upper East Side. Whoops. Shutting down traffic on the very important thoroughfare, the FDR. So I appreciated that update and thought at the same time, noted this in the Thanksgiving coverage, uh, one piece of advice as you make your travel plans. And I don't know whether some of you can help this or not, but the peak traffic, the worst traffic will be tomorrow, Wednesday, between 2 p.m. and 6 p.m., wherever you are. So if you can avoid that four-hour time period, you'll do yourself a favor. Mosh, are you planning to travel at all for Thanksgiving? The farthest we're going, Jill, is about six miles to my mother-in-law's on Thursday. Six miles in New York City is not six miles <laughs> anywhere it could, else. It could take an hour. <laughs> it could take an hour. There's the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and what whatnot. So we're definitely going to plan around it. And as I'm discovering in fatherhood, traveling becomes a bit more cumbersome with children and requires more planning, logistics, and and, and whatnot. Your car is going to be packed so full that it's going to look like you're traveling for a week. Okay. But you're going for two <laughs> hours. It's for like one meal, but you're going to have so much stuff in your car. <laughs> it's going to look like you're going on a full fledged vacation. I try to keep it slim, but you never, <laughs> you never quite know what they're going to need. She's still young. She's still young. So not too much. I think it gets worse with time. Okay, let's get to some headlines here. A follow-up to the story we told you about yesterday. Sam Altman heading to Microsoft as OpenAI employees are now threatening to quit the company unless the board resigns. Javier Mille, a right-wing libertarian populist, elected president of Argentina. What that means. The world now on pace to blow past the Paris climate targets. The latest in the Middle East as the fight now heads to southern Gaza. What you need to know about a mysterious illness affecting dogs in several states. And remember Pablo Escobar's cocaine hippos? Colombia says it has a plan to deal with them. Jill, this is my favorite story. I love the cocaine hippo story. And it's the gift that keeps on giving. They can't quite figure out what to do with them, though they think they have a solution now in Colombia. And red, red wine, so good, but also so bad, even just a few hours later. Scientists, though, say they may have solved the mystery of red wine headaches. And then Biden talks turkey and then pardons them. The traditional Thanksgiving turkey pardon. And Moshe's on the day in history. Jill, your clue today, a turkey for me, a turkey for you. Let's eat turkey in my big brown shoe. <laughs> Adam, does this involve Adam Sandler? <laughs> of course it does. On this day in history, Jill. All right, let's start with an update to the OpenAI Sam Altman saga we first reported on yesterday. 48 hours after being ousted by the OpenAI board, Sam Altman got a new gig. Microsoft hired him to run a new advanced artificial intelligence research team. As we mentioned yesterday, there were talks all weekend between Altman and OpenAI to bring him back on board as CEO, but they could not reach a deal. There are reports that Altman's insistence that the current board resign in order for him to come back, uh, not going to happen. So late Sunday, Microsoft chief executive Satya Nadella hired Altman and also OpenAI's president and co-founder Greg Brockman 
Brockman resigned on Friday as a protest over Altman's ouster. So they are going to be leading a new team at Microsoft. Microsoft made a $13 billion investment in OpenAI. Nadella says it is still committed to its partnership. OpenAI has become the most visible of a new generation of AI companies. It's ChatGPT, the chatbot that millions of people are using, has become a symbol of everyday AI innovation. As for who's now running the ship at OpenAI, the board quickly found someone else to take Altman's spot, hiring Emmett Shear, the former CEO of Twitch, as their interim CEO. Yeah, Twitch is that video streaming site, uh, live streaming, mainly focused on gaming you might be familiar with. Uh, in a post, Sheer, the new, new interim CEO, Jill, they've had like three CEOs in four <laughs> days there um, over at OpenAI. Uh, Sheer says he'll be hiring an independent investigator to figure out what exactly took place with the firing uh, writing. It's clear that the process communication here around his removal has been handled very badly and has seriously damaged our trust. He has a big job ahead of him. Uh, more than 500 of the 700 employees who work there signed a letter on Monday calling for the board to step down or risk mass resignations. We mentioned this on the pod yesterday, OpenAI worth more than $80 billion, the face of AI. It's one of the reasons people um, should care about this is because the leadership of these AI companies is so important because, of course, we've been concerned about AI not being secure enough, that it's not being um, captained responsibly. And so with this chaos at the top at OpenAI, it's one of the reasons why people have been paying so much attention um, to what is taking place there and the various personalities one of the people who was key to pushing Altman out, Ilya Sutskever, apologized for any damage that it caused the company, writing, I deeply regret my participation in the board's actions. I never intended to harm OpenAI. I love everything we've built together, and I will do everything I can to reunite the company. Well, at this point, uh, that's going to be a little challenging. This whole thing, though, has drawn uh, a lot of attention to a rift within the AI community between people who believe AI is the most important new technology since web browsers and others who recognize its importance but worry that it's moving too fast and it could develop in a way that's dangerous. Sutskever, the man who pushed Altman out, is now regretting his actions, was worried that Altman was too focused on building OpenAI's business, profitability, all of that, while not paying enough attention to the dangers of AI. You see Satya Nandela and Microsoft step in there being like, we're going to make some money here. Altman, come aboard. That's what this is about. Now, of course, I'm being a little simplistic there. Nadella has said, you know, we're going to be cautious about how we approach this. That said, they did sink $13 billion into OpenAI and were completely shocked by what took place. And so, you know, take two of the smartest people in AI, bring them within the uh, Microsoft orbit and figure out ways to profit and keep building this thing. And I guess time will tell about who's right here. You know, if, if one day we are just destroyed by AI, we'll know who to thank, Sam Altman. But how much shareholder value was created in that time, Jill? <laughs> the stuff that really matters. No, Microsoft shares, by the way, tanked <laughs> on Friday. They initially tanked. Yes, and now are way back up that they've hired Nadella made Altman. a very smart call business-wise. He made sure to put out the announcement of Altman's hire before the market opened on Monday because Microsoft was set to lose even more money. Um, so... Uh, strategically, again, we created a lot of shareholder value on Monday, Jill. I don't know how much more secure AI is, but some people have done very well off Microsoft stock on Monday. Yes. One of the takeaways from an analyst that I was reading is the big winner in all of this, Satya Nadella. 
<laughs> I mean, listen, this little upstart called Microsoft really needed a couple uh, a couple things to go in its favor if they're hoping to survive. All right, now let's turn to some major election results in South America. Voters in Argentina have overwhelmingly elected Javier Milei, an ultra-conservative economist, as the next president of the South American country. With nearly all of the votes counted, the former TV pundit won by more than 10 points. The far-right populist and first-time congressman won the second round of the presidential election, defeating Sergio Massa, the economy minister from the ruling Peronist party, addressing a crowd of ecstatic supporters in Buenos Aires, Mile saying Argentina was, quote, in a critical situation and that it was not a time for half measures. Mile, a newcomer to politics, just winning a seat in the Congress two years ago with his ultra-conservative libertarian party called Freedom Advances. He describes himself as an anarcho-capitalist and pledged to battle Argentina's staggering inflation, which is now at more than 140%. Again, that is 140% inflation. He's calling for replacing their current currency, the peso, with the dollar and abolishing the central bank. Yeah, he's pledging here to dollarize the economy. Jill, remarkable, right? That inflation we've been talking about, peaking inflation at 8% here, uh, down to 3%. In Argentina, 140%. Literally, their citizens down there are forced to carry around large wads of cash just to buy groceries um, as the currency has gone completely berserk. And that's one of the reasons why they're making this major change that you know I've heard from some voters down there. I'll get to what they were saying in a second. But ultimately, they're going with someone who is advocating some very extreme measures, among other things. Mile is talking about shutting down the central bank there. He actually, at some events, brings a chainsaw, turns it on and says, this is what I'm going to do to the central bank. He's talked about cutting the number of government ministries from 18 to 8, taking down the political caste of the country, basically his version of drain the swamp. He's been very close to Trump, by the way. Trump saying that he should do MAGA in Argentina, make Argentina great again. Mile has actually been wearing MAGA hats in Argentina, saying, you know, he believes Trump is one of the greatest presidents of all time. Uh, So the two of them have been complimenting each other. And they sort of both took power in the same way as a message voters are sending to the establishment. And that's what we hear from a lot of voters down there saying, I don't necessarily agree with everything Mile stands for, but I believe we need to send a message to the government that's largely been in charge here for a very long time. For 16 of the past 20 years, Argentina has been governed by the powerful populist machine. You mentioned them, the Peronist Party, as in Juan and Evita Peron. Don't cry for me, Argentina. Juan and Evita Peron. And so that party has been popular and come back again multiple times um, in Argentine history. The most recent uh, of the country's leaders have left a once wealthy nation in its worst shape in two decades. Uh, We've mentioned the inflation out of control. Argentina just saw its second decade ever without economic growth. Poverty rates shot up from 28% to now more than 40%. Four in 10 Argentines are now under the poverty uh, level. And that includes even employed people, uh, people with full-time jobs living below the poverty line. Hence the feeling here that they needed to do something extreme. Now, keep in mind, he doesn't. his party doesn't control the full government here. He's going to need to compromise with the legislature, which is why you know some people sent us messages on Mo News saying, listen, again, I don't agree with everything this guy stands for, but hopefully some of his most extreme ideas will be blocked. But we do need to do something drastic in this country, given the situation with the economy. Now, keep in mind, uh, beyond the sort of more extreme political stances, 
He's a pretty eccentric guy, Millet. We mentioned he's a former cable TV pundit. He uh, denies climate change. He once described Pope Francis, who comes from Argentina, as a filthy leftist and supporter of communists. Uh, Millet has never been married. He says he's a tantric sex expert, and he considers his five bull mastiff dogs all cloned from a past pet, uh, his four-legged children. So he walks around with these cloned dogs of his as well. He's going to be taking office on December 10th, and we'll see how things go down there. (laughs) What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes, Jill, you got to go with an extreme move. Listen, Ukraine hired a comedy performer who played a president in a movie, President. That guy's name is Vladimir Zelensky. Uh, And so he's been leading them through this war. So you never quite know that maybe when you zag, as opposed to zigging, Maybe you come up with something, but that said, Jill, this guy is quite a character, has quite some extreme views. We'll see what goes on. The thing about Argentina is the democracy has been back for about four decades now after uh, ever since that dictatorship in the um, 70s. So let's wish them well. It's a beautiful country. I got to go down there a few years ago, and I hope they can recover because this 140% inflation is just, uh, it's not sustainable. All right, time now for the speed read from the Associated Press. Earth set to blow well past the agreed upon international climate threshold, according to a new U.N. report. While many of the world's nations are taking more concrete steps to tackle climate change than ever before, they are still very far from making the sweeping changes needed to keep global temperatures at relatively safe levels. The annual assessment is known as the Emissions Gap Report. It tracks the difference between national ambitions to fight global warming and what scientists say is actually needed to stave off catastrophe. That gulf has shrunk slightly over the past year, but it is still quite large. This year, Earth got a taste of what's to come, said the report, which sets the table for international climate talks later this month. At least 149 countries have updated their pledges under the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement to curb their greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. If every single country were to follow through on its slated plans, and that is a big if, then global greenhouse gas emissions would be 2% to 9% lower at the end of the decade than they are today. So that sounds nice, 2 to 9%. What the report says is needed, 42% cut in emissions by the end of the decade if we even want a shot at preventing us from surpassing the 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold adopted by that climate accord. That's 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temps. Um, Like we've said many times on this pod, sort of like Earth having a fever, while that one and a half degrees doesn't seem significant, that one and a half degrees, uh, for example, if you have a fever, throws your entire body out of whack, and that's what's happening to Earth. That's why they believe this one and a half degree threshold is so important. Now, we're talking about cuts here of 2 to 9% or 42% by the end of the decade. What took place in the last year? Carbon emissions actually rose by 1.2%. So we're going in the wrong direction, according to this report. And it comes as global temperatures in 2023 have reached the highest level in recorded history. This year is believed to be the hottest in 100,000 years based on um, records and the various techniques scientists use to discover average temps. Now, this report comes out as representatives from about 200 countries will converge in Dubai next week for what's known as COP28, the latest UN climate summit. There, diplomats will be discussing what to do. Uh, when it comes to climate change. Some countries, including the U.S. and China, the two top polluters in the world, have suggested that nations should seek to triple the amount of renewable energy they're using, like wind and solar power, by the end of this decade in the next six years. 
Other countries are calling for a phase out of the burning of coal, oil and gas unless their emissions can be captured, carbon capture uh, and buried underground, which is a very expensive technique but can be effective. That's actually something that some Republicans like Nikki Haley call for here who don't want to cut emissions. We'll see what comes out of the summit next week in Dubai. Um, Jill, that's where they saw some record summer temps in the 130s last summer. Which at a point makes certain parts of the globe uninhabitable. All right, now to a different part of the Middle East from CNN. 28 premature Palestinian babies arrived in Egypt on a convoy of ambulances from Gaza on Monday. This is according to an Egyptian government official after the infants were evacuated from Al-Shifa Hospital in northern Gaza. Four mothers and six nurses accompanied the babies who will be sent to two separate hospitals in Egypt for treatment. On Sunday, 31 babies were transferred from Al-Shifa to Emirati Hospital in the southern city of Rafa. It was an operation marshaled by the Palestinian Red Crescent Society and several other organizations. UNICEF said the evacuation took place in extremely dangerous conditions and followed the tragic death of several other babies and total collapse of all medical services at Al-Shifa. It was done with the cooperation of the Israelis. Al-Shifa is the largest hospital in Gaza and has become a flashpoint in Israel's war against Hamas. The Israeli military alleges that the facility is being used by Hamas as a shield for its operations and raided the hospital last Wednesday. Hamas and hospital officials have denied those claims. Yeah, that's despite some uh, video evidence released over the weekend by Israel showing um, Hamas utilizing the facility, as well as some confessions by Hamas fighters in Israeli interrogations. Uh, that video also released um, on Monday. Now, with Al-Shifa largely evacuated and still being searched by Israeli soldiers, another medical facility in northern Gaza uh, went into the firing line on Monday, this time the Indonesian hospital. That's where officials say at least 10 people died in the crossfire on Monday. The Israelis saying that militants from Hamas had opened fire at the troops from within that hospital, and the Israelis uh, returned fire there, uh, trying to fight off um, Hamas and continue their operations through northern Gaza, where they believe they have Hamas on the run, have killed more than 1,000 Hamas fighters, and are consolidating basic control over that part of the territory. With that said, the Israelis are now looking to shift the focus of their military campaign to now southern Gaza in the coming weeks. That's where they're likely to face the hardest stage of the war as they look to crush Hamas here. Now, while they've largely succeeded in the northern part of Gaza, uh, they still have only partially destroyed Hamas's military capabilities and haven't captured or killed many of its top leaders. They've taken out kind of that next level of battalion leaders. So the Israelis are telling the Wall Street Journal that they're looking at moving towards the south, where they believe the hostages are being held, there's more underground tunnels, and where Hamas leadership is. This will be a much more difficult fight, though, Jill, because Hamas basically will be stuck in a corner here, unable to escape anywhere, and will actually force the Israelis to have to get deep inside those tunnels, potentially. So far in the north, they've just blown up the entrances to the tunnels. They haven't gone too deep inside them. But all of this will be made very complicated by the fact that almost all of Gaza's civilian population now lives in southern Gaza. It's about 2.2 million people. Again, the Israelis here say they have no choice but to invade southern and central Gaza as they want to take out the masterminds of the October 7th attack and recover the hostages. That said, U.S. officials are urging the Israelis to delay stepped-up operations in the south until there are much more thought-through plans on how to protect all the civilians that are currently living down there. 
And most some reporting from Axios's Barack Ravid on Monday about a potential hostage deal. He said talks are ongoing, but it's kind of like watching paint dry where it feels really tedious and slow, but eventually the paint does dry. And he said that there are a few sticking points, but the sides appear to be getting closer. For example, there are questions, of course, about how many hostages Hamas would release and how long a ceasefire would potentially last. And then there are also things like drones. So Israel is flying drones over Gaza. Hamas wants Israel to stop for X amount of hours. Right, because Hamas doesn't want Israel to figure out where it's hiding the hostages. So they want the Israelis to stop flying drones, especially when they release the hostages, so Israel can't isolate where they're coming from. And we reported on this yesterday, but there is this divide in Israel's war cabinet where you've got Netanyahu and his camp that says the priority is both to destroy Hamas and get the hostages back. And then Benny Gantz and his camp saying the priority is to get the hostages back. So you could see on the one hand, as close as they are, it does feel like things could fall apart at any second. Yeah, the Israeli president saying on Monday, too, that one of the issues they face is they're dealing with a psychopath in the Hamas leader, Sinwar, who was the mastermind of the October 7th attacks. He's determining what to do uh, and how many hostages to release. And again, this debate within Israel, which is do you do whatever it takes to get the hostages back, including releasing prisoners, stopping the war, or um, are you just making the war worse and another attack inevitable by uh, an exchange for the hostages? even though it is so painful for the Israelis, especially those families whose loved ones are trapped in tunnels in Gaza now for nearly 50 days. All right, switching gears from CBS News, pet owners beware an unusual respiratory illness in dogs that does not respond to antibiotics is being investigated in several states across the country. Oregon, Colorado, and New Hampshire are among the states that have seen cases of the illness which is causing a lasting respiratory disease and pneumonia. Symptoms in dogs include coughing, sneezing, nasal or eye discharge, and just tiredness. Some cases of the pneumonia progress really quickly, making dogs very sick within 24 to 36 hours. One vet telling CBS News that unfortunately, right now, nobody knows even exactly what it is. But they say that if your dog gets sick, you should see your veterinarian right away because they could treat at least the symptoms, even if they don't have an actual cure for viruses. They say there's really no good antiviral on the market, but they can support the symptoms. Yeah, we should note right here that a lot of vets are saying, don't panic, though. A researcher in New Hampshire who's been investigating this mystery disease among the dogs for almost a year now says his team has not seen a large increase in dogs dying from the illness, is basically just encouraging pet owners to decrease contact with other dogs, keep dogs away from other dogs in places like kennels, dog parks, groomers, if possible. Over in Oregon, they've seen about 200 cases of the disease in just the past couple months. They've encouraged pet owners to contact their vet if their dog is sick, has told state veterinarians to report cases as soon as possible as they try to pin this thing down. Uh, But again, the message we're hearing is don't panic, just take some basic precautions with your pet. All right, now to Moshe's favorite story of the day from the New York Times. A different sort of pet, Jill. Yes, when the Colombian drug lord Pablo Escobar was killed back in 1993, Most of the animals that he had imported as pets, zebras, giraffes, kangaroos, and rhinoceroses, died or were transferred to zoos. But not his four hippopotamuses. They thrived, and perhaps a little too well. Officials estimate that about 170 hippos 
now Rome, Colombia, descendants of just those four, and the population could grow to a thousand by 2035, posing a serious threat to the country's ecosystem. Jill, what's the expression? Like rabbits? I feel like like hippos. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> this month, after years of debate about what to do with the voracious herbivores, Colombian officials announced a plan to sterilize some, possibly euthanize others, and relocate some to sanctuaries in other countries. On Friday, one official said that four hippos, two adult females and two younger males, had already been surgically sterilized. So we got these hippos in Colombia. The officials there describe the hippos as a very aggressive and invasive species with no natural predators, um, hence their ability to sort of dominate the landscape. Escobar first brought uh, a couple hippos to his estate back in the 80s, part of this wild animal menagerie he used to have to entertain guests at sort of the peak of his uh, drug cartel power. And then, of course, he goes and the hippos remain in the river there and continue to procreate. Back about 15 years ago, there was a hunting party of Colombian soldiers who were trying to stop the hippos. They shot and killed one named Pepe back in 09. The hunt prompted a major outcry in Colombia. The hunt was suspended by a judge. And then the government has been spending the last decade trying to figure out what to do. Their goal right now, sterilize 40 hippos a year. But Jill, we've looked into this and appears sterilizing a hippo is not like spaying or neutering a cat. It's a little more complicated with these big things. Um, it's a little bit complicated because hippos can weigh more than three tons. They spend most of their days in the water, so they're easiest to capture at night. Now, the experts, I guess, in hippo uh, sterilization say that they generally are tranquilized with a dart and then undergo surgery wherever they land. The problem is if they run into the water after being hit with a dart, they could drown. So you have to be strategic about where you hit the hippo with a dart uh, and put it to sleep. Right now, as far as cost, they believe that each sterilization will cost 10 grand, so basically 10 grand per hippo. There's a team of eight people, including vets, who will be uh, involved in the hippo sterilization project in Colombia. We wish them luck as the uh, hippos take over the landscape there. Hungry, hungry hippos. I was just going to say, we all know that game from our youth. Hippos, mm -hmm. they look cute, but they are very dangerous. Very dangerous. We did a safari. Actually, Alex and I did a safari for our honeymoon. And, you know, there's all these lions and all these animals out there. And we asked, like, so what's the most dangerous animal in Africa? By the way, that's the native habitat for these hippos. That's where Escobar got the hippos from originally. And they're like, it's hippos. Hippos kill more people a year in Africa than any other animal, several hundred, actually. They're vicious. They run after people. So we were told, despite seeing, again, lions and some of these cats that you might fear, that it's the hippos that you got to watch out for. And uh, there you have it. One of the reasons Colombia is trying to take the hippo situation seriously. All right. From The Guardian, researchers believe that they have found the reason why wine and red wine in particular causes such swift and undeserved headaches. A preliminary study published Monday in the journal Scientific Reports proposes a novel theory that an antioxidant that's found in grape skins affects how your body processes alcohol. That process leads to the buildup of a toxic byproduct that then causes headaches. Scientists at the University of California, Davis, found that the culprit could be a flavanol that occurs naturally in red wines and can interfere with the proper metabolism of alcohol. Flavanols are a group of compounds that are found in many plants so the flavanol called quercetin is naturally present in grapes and other fruits and vegetables. It's considered a healthy antioxidant, 
However, when it's metabolized with alcohol, issues can occur. It leads to the creation of an inflammatory toxin that can cause facial flushing, headache, and nausea. That sounds familiar. Can they do anything about, you know, your teeth getting red when you drink red wine? I'm sure there's studies related (laughs) to that, too. They're going to figure out how to genetically modify wine that doesn't stain your teeth, Jill. But first, they want to get to the bottom of the headache situation. Apparently, the level of flavonoids can be 10 times higher in red wine versus white wine, making them the prime candidate here for causing immediate headaches. Apparently, the sun impacts the level of flavonoids as well. So the more sun exposure these grapes get that then go into the wine, uh, the more likely they might be to create a headache. Now, we should not confuse red wine headaches from hangover headaches the day after drinking. It doesn't require actually excessive amounts of wine. In most cases, red wine headaches might start 30 minutes to three hours uh, and come from only drinking one glass of wine. Now, the amount of quercetin in wines also varies greatly. Uh, As I mentioned, factors like sunlight exposure that the grapes receive and how the wine is made can impact the amount present in each product. Interestingly, Jill, there's a drug that they use to treat alcoholics that produces the same miserable symptoms if they drink it. Now, of course, in the drug, it's intentional trying to work with the alcoholics, but they found that some of the ingredients in the drug used for that are found here. So now that they've discovered this, the team now hopes to test the theory with a clinical trial on the headache-inducing effects of red wines with different quercetin levels, and the results could help people avoid red wine headaches in the future. Jill, I feel for the people who somehow get put in the group where they get the headaches um, in the wine study, though I imagine not only is the wine free, you're probably getting paid to be part of that study. I've never actually gotten a headache so quickly after drinking the wine. I'm like the, the hangover person the next day. So it must be the way that... That my body metabolizes it. Yes. Consider yourself lucky there, Jill. (laughs) You keep on drinking. Something to be thankful for (laughs) this season. From Politico, Joe Biden spent his 81st birthday, the only way a president would want to, really, pardoning turkeys and telling jokes, where he did try to make light of his age. And by the way, it's my birthday today, and they can actually sing birthday music. I just want you to know it's difficult turning 60. <laughs> difficult. Still trying to make 60 happen there, Joe, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Monday's annual event marked the 76th anniversary of the White House turkey pardon. It dates back to 1947 when the National Turkey Federation first presented the National Thanksgiving turkey to President Harry Truman. Biden, in another age reference, joked that he was not present at Truman's event But he was alive. He was five years old at the time. Jill, we should note, Harry Truman didn't pardon that turkey. He ate that turkey. He was presented with the turkey uh, and actually ate the turkey. It wasn't until JFK (laughs) that there was a pardoning of the turkey. He was just like, "Mm, looks delicious. Thank you. He's like, thanks for the free turkey. (laughs) This year's turkeys are named Liberty and Belle. And most you just mentioned, while the Thanksgiving bird used to be for the first family's consumption, That is no longer the case. Beginning in the late 1980s, the event eventually evolved into an oftentimes funny ceremony, minus the occasional snap at the pardoner's hand, in which the turkeys are given a second chance at life. Yes, there's a whole history here. It is alleged that the first pardon actually happened by Abraham Lincoln, that his son didn't want a turkey to die. Now, again, it's unclear how true that story is. Mention the Truman thing. Finally, JFK pardons the turkey. And then it never really becomes a thing for LBJ or Nixon or Ford. Finally, Bush 41, Bush the father, basically created the modern tradition with the annual turkey pardon. 
So what happens with these pardoned turkeys? Well, they go to live out their lives without fear of being slaughtered. Liberty and Bell will make their trek back out to live at the University of Minnesota. As far as the White House ceremony was concerned, there was some awkwardness around the table. President Biden bungled a joke referencing the challenging nature of getting a ticket to Beyonce's Renaissance or Taylor Swift's Eras concerts, appearing to confuse Taylor Swift with Britney Spears. Britney and Bell had to beat some tough odds, the competition. They had to work hard to show patience and be willing to travel over a thousand miles. You could say even this harder than getting a, a ticket to the Renaissance tour or 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 Britney's tour. She's down in, it's kind of warm in Brazil right now. Oops. He did it again, Jill. <laughs> but Moshe, it's like if you can't get the joke right to sound cool and hip, just don't do the joke. You don't Joe, need it. <laughs> it. It was necessary. It's only going to create problems. You're just creating a gap for yourself, which he's, you know, known to do. He's been doing it for years. I'm sure his, you know, his speechwriter was cringing. Like, let's give him a Taylor Swift joke. <laughs> just read off the teleprompter. And he's like, Brittany, where's Britney Spears? She's got a tour in Brazil. <laughs> All right, finally now for On This Day in History, a happy 240th birthday to the hot air balloon. The first crewed hot air balloon made its flight over Paris today in 1783. On this day in 1934, a 17-year-old by the name of Ella Fitzgerald wins amateur night at the Apollo. Now, Fitzgerald was orphaned at the age of 15. She was then a high school dropout uh, and a ward of New York State when she made her way to the Apollo that night in 1934 with two of her girlfriends. She says it was a bet. We just put our names in. We never thought we'd get a call. Of course, she would perform, blow some people away, and she would go on to become a jazz legend um, in the decades thereafter, a revolutionary innovator when it comes to jazz. All right, on this day in 1976, Adrian. Rocky, starring Sylvester Stallone, the underdog prize fighter from Philadelphia, debuted in theaters. The movie was a huge box office hit. It would receive 10 Oscar nominations, including Best Actor and Best Original Screenplay. Now, Sly was actually a struggling actor in his 20s, really struggling to, you know, make it big in Hollywood. And he was writing some screenplays. Ultimately, one of his screenplays was Rocky. He wrote it and he insisted that he had to play the lead. Now, of course, he would give away a bunch of rights to Rocky that he's still fighting for, that the person who bought the rights to Rocky is still profiting much more than Sly Stallone is. But that was his idea. Basically, I think there's been like approximately 450 uh, sequels to Rocky. Most of them he's been in. The last couple he's not been in. But quite a string of movies, Joe, that have lasted, what was this, four decades now, five decades. All right. Finally, we end here with some music history. On this day in 1960, a young George Harrison would be deported by the country of Germany. In their early days, the Beatles played in the German city of Hamburg. The Fab Four headed out in the summer of 1960. At the time, Harrison was the youngest member of the band. He actually was only 17, meaning it was not technically legal for him to be performing in the country. So he gets deported from Germany, eventually gets to come back after he turns 18. Uh, McCartney was also, during that time, deported from Germany. He, in an incident in uh, his dressing room, lit something on fire, was charged with arson. McCartney was also deported by Germany and then also eventually made his way back. A little Beatles history for you today. I did know that they used to play in Germany because if you've ever read the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, 
he talks about this idea that you really need 10,000 hours of doing something to become exceptional at it. Mm -hmm. And he was saying one of the reasons that the Beatles got so good, everyone thinks they were like this overnight sensation, is no, they were playing in this like little nightclub in Germany for hours upon hours upon hours and worked hard and got really good uh, and then were discovered. So that whole overnight sensation thing, not real. Except for that time where George Harrison got deported. On the stand exactly, history. exactly. <laughs> All right, and finally. A turkey for me, turkey for you. Let's eat turkey in a big brown shoe. Love to eat the turkey at the table. I once saw a movie with Betty Grable. Joe, you recognized it at the top. That's the Thanksgiving song, which debuted today, 31 years ago, on Saturday Night Live, with a very young Adam Sandler performing it next to Kevin Nealon on Weekend Update. <laughs> It is one of my husband's favorites, <laughs> I have to it's, say. It, it is a, it's a classic, and I would like to know why Meta Instagram doesn't have it available as a song on Instagram. So on stories, sometimes we'll post you know, various news articles with music accompaniment on Instagram, and I, for the life of me, cannot find the Adam Sandler Thanksgiving song. It is very annoying, and I would like them to get the rights to it, please. It's funny that you say that, because I have been looking for Thanksgiving songs <laughs> this week to post with our podcast, and I have yeah. not had much luck. <sighs> uh, it's, iPhone. It's tough. Love to eat turkey. <laughs> Love to eat turkey. White meat, dark meat. You can't just lose. I fell off my moped, and I got a bruise. I mean, Adam Sandler, we've talked about his like mastery of the 1990s. It was an incredible run he had there. All right, Jill, time to go. Mosh, I will read us out. A big thank you to everybody for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. Turkey and sweet potato pie. Sammy Davis Jr. only had one eye. That's it for us today, folks. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you tomorrow in this shortened week. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.